you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like you to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter, and when you've found Deuteronomy chapter 10, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 10. We're going to begin our reading in verse 10. This is Moses speaking. Now I had stayed on the mountain forty days and nights, as I did the first time. And the Lord listened to me at this time also. It was not his will to destroy you. Go, the Lord said to me, and lead the people on their way, so that they may enter and possess the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would bless as you promise the reading and the hearing of your word. Spirit of God, we pray that you would be our teacher this morning. Open our eyes to see your truth, our ears to hear it. Lord, open our hearts as Tony's prayed. Soften our hearts to receive uh, the truth of your word. May it go deep within us. And Father, as your word and your truth makes its way into our hearts, we pray that a great transformation would take place in our lives so that we truly become the people that you have called us to be, eager to do the things that you have called us to do. For we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. God is unstoppable. God is unstoppable. What say you to that? Amen. That's what we saw last week as we considered God's response to Moses' prayer of intercession on behalf of his people. When God told Moses to leave him alone so that he may destroy these faithless, sinful people, so that he may blot out, wipe out their name from under heaven, Moses prayed for 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain with the Lord. God's response to Moses, as we saw last week, was to tell Moses, now Moses, bring me two more stone tablets like the ones that were broken, like the ones Moses smashed when he saw the people worshiping around the golden calf. God said, bring me two tablets like the first ones, and on those two tablets I will write the same words that I wrote on the first tablets of stone. Because God is unstoppable. God's plan is unstoppable. Man's sin, man's rebellion... Man's obstinance, man's ignorance, man's lack of understanding of the ways of God cannot ever stop the plan of God. The golden calf in Moses' day 
not powerful enough. The opposition in Jesus' day could not stop the plan of God. There were bad men, like the Pharisees, with bad plans that tried to stop God. They repeatedly plotted how they might take Jesus' life before his time, but every time their attempts ended in failure because God's plan is unstoppable. In the Garden of Gethsemane, after eating the Last Supper with the disciples, Jesus proclaimed the hour had now come. And so the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, led by Judas, came to arrest Jesus. Jesus asked them, who is it you want? The soldiers replied, Jesus of Nazareth. And when Jesus replied, I am he, the soldiers drew back and fell to the ground, just breathing out his name, I am, caused these heavily armored soldiers to fall to the ground. They could have never arrested the great I am in that moment if Jesus had not permitted it, if that were not part of his unstoppable plan. Bad men with wicked intent cannot stop the plan of God. Good men, like Peter, who didn't understand the plan of God, couldn't stop it either. Jesus told Peter and his disciples that he was going to be killed, but after three days he would be raised to life again. Peter took Jesus aside, you know the story, and he rebuked Jesus. And he said, never, Lord, exclamation point, this shall never happen to you, exclamation point. But Jesus' face was set toward Jerusalem to go there and to die there. And so he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Even well-intentioned people cannot stop the plan of God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter once again, he draws a sword and they come to arrest Jesus, and he, he lops off the ear of the high priest's servant. But Jesus immediately takes the ear and he restores it and he heals the man. He turns to Peter and he says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The plan of God is what? Unstoppable. Finally, they nail Jesus to the cross. And how smug they were. Standing below the cross, looking up, passing by, shouting out insults to Jesus. You, you who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. But Jesus didn't come down. He died on the cross. And it seemed in that moment that the plan of God had been stopped, but not so much. Three days later, Jesus' dead body was not in the tomb. Why? Because he was risen. Why? Because the power of God brought him back to life. Why? Because the plan of God is unstoppable. And God is unstoppable, and he is unyielding in his plan to rescue us. That's the truth. God is unstoppable, 
And he is unyielding in his plan not to allow us to languish forever in the misery of darkness and sickness and death. God is unstoppable. And he is unyielding in his plan to rescue us from an eternity separated from him. Separated from his light. Separated from his love. God is unstoppable and unyielding in his plan to redeem us. You and me. To buy us back, to restore us to the glory that he gave to men and women when he created them sinless and placed them in the Garden of Eden. Back to the time when Adam and Eve, our parents, knew unbroken, unhindered, unobstructed communication with God as they walked with him. And talked with him in the cool of the day. Back to the reality when the only fear that they knew was the fear of awe and reverence that they had such an unbelievable and amazing God. See, you and I are headed back to that place. We're headed back to that reality. Not in the garden this time, but in a city. In the city of God. That's the truth. And our God will accomplish it because our God is unstoppable. He proved it to Moses on Mount Sinai. Jesus proved it to us on the cross. And so the question now is, what will our response be? What will our response be to this unstoppable God and all He has done for us? That's the question before us this morning. Look in verse 12. Moses asks, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? See, Moses doesn't present this as a simple statement. Now, O Israel, the Lord asks something of you. Statements aren't as engaging as questions. Questions make you think. And so Moses asks a question. But Moses doesn't ask a yes-no question. He doesn't say, and now, O Israel, does the Lord require something of you? Because the answer to that question is a given. It's yes, of course the Lord asks something of you. The question is what? What does the Lord require of you? You know, the group Smart Alec may yell from the back wanting a laugh or attention. Nothing! The Lord requires nothing of us. But in light of everything that the Lord had done for his people and sparing their lives, And forgiving their sin, their betrayal, their spiritual treason as they worshipped around the golden calf and called it their God, I'm quite certain that that smart aleck would have been shunned into silence. What does the Lord ask of you? God's people must respond to God's goodness. God's people must respond to God's goodness. I know that Presbyterians are often conditioned not to respond. Too often the appellation frozen, chosen, is true of us. We sit like great blocks of ice. We call it dignified. We call it reverent. We even feel just a little superior to those others who can't control their emotions as we do. This is not normal. (laughs) This is not normal. Normal people 
normal people are created to respond to something as emotionally and intellectually overwhelming as all of these interactions must have been with the one and only true and living God. As irrepressible and irresistible as God's actions were most certainly on their behalf. And that's why scripture talks about, hold on, clapping, singing, shouting, dancing, lifting hands, falling prostrate before the Lord. See, these are physical responses to truth that stir the emotions so deeply. So that our whole being is impacted. Our minds, they are, are struck. They're overwhelmed by the truth of God. Our emotions are so overcome by God and who He is and what He has done for us that we must find an outlet. And so God makes provision for that in singing and shouting and clapping and dancing and falling before the Lord. And so here in verse 12, God through Moses asks for a response. And actually, it's much stronger than that. God requires a response. The NIV translates this verse as, What does the Lord ask of you? But almost every other translation, the ESV and the, the New American Standard, the King James, the New King James among them, they all translate the Hebrew word that's used here as require. What does the Lord require of you? Require. Now, that's a word that we shy away from. Let me tell you, I shied away from this word this week. Because I, I wrote a letter to our community group leaders, or community group hosts, or cheerleaders, to tell them about a training that we're having this coming Saturday. So you can pray for that. This coming Saturday, we're having this training for our community groups. So we can get them off to a good start and, and, and a great kickoff in the fall. And so I drafted a letter, and in the first draft, I used the R word. I said, all leaders are required to come. But then I chickened out. I chickened out, and I, I took out the R word because I know how people bristle against that word. I know how people can easily not do what they were going to do, how they cannot do what they want to do the minute they think it's being required of them. And you know how it feels when someone asks you to do something you're just getting ready to do. You know, here you are, you're four steps away from the trash can. And you're going to take the trash and you're going to pull it out and you're going to tie up the bag and you're going to get rid of the trash. But, but right as you get to the trash can, your wife says, um, will you empty the trash for me? And you freeze in your tracks and you think, no, I won't empty the trash for you. I'll empty the trash for me. But then you almost stumble trying to redirect your steps. It's, ah, oh, no, no, I, I, I'm going to the garage. I gotta go get a, I gotta go get a nail because I, I gotta hammer something and, and maybe I'll get around to it later. Am I the only one that does that? Tell the truth. Am I the only one that does that? We don't want to do what someone else requires of us. But Moses makes it clear here. That God does require something of us. And you and I need to be clear on that. Because in places like Redeemer, where we emphasize the grace of God so much, you always run the risk of communicating to people that God's free grace is synonymous with no requirements. Oh, it's all of grace, we have nothing to do. 
And suddenly we find ourselves being almost like the, the people that, that Paul has his argument with in Romans chapter 6. In verse 1 of that chapter, the Apostle Paul argues, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means exclamation point. And then the Apostle follows that with lots of requirements. Verse 11 says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ. That's a requirement. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. That's a requirement. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That's a requirement. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. That's a requirement. And then in verse 15, Paul asks, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means, exclamation point. Followed by more requirements. Verse 19. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. So listen, okay? We have got to be clear on this point. The God of all grace... The God of free grace, the God of saving grace, requires things of us. But that does not negate grace. And we're going to look at those requirements, if the Lord is willing, next week. But first, I want us to look at when you and I are to do what the Lord requires of us to do. When is it should we do what the Lord requires of us? Look again in verse 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Now, Israel, people of God, chosen by God, what does the Lord require of you now? And so Moses brings all of these people to the present moment. He's been rehearsing the past with them. The giving of the Ten Commandments the worshiping around the golden calf, but most of these people weren't alive at that time and they certainly weren't participants in those events. But nevertheless, all that God did for them, God did then was for them now. Very recently I was struck by a statement I've never heard before. My father-in-law just said, you know, God doesn't have any grandchildren. I'm like, sure he does. He's got grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-grandchildren. No, God doesn't have grandchildren. God has sons and daughters. Either you are a son of God or a daughter of God, or you are not. Each individual stands before God. Not your parents, not your grandparents. It's not what God did with or in or through them, but it's you, you, here, right now. What is the present value of what God has done for you now in this moment? And what will you do with God now? What does the Lord require of you now? You know, as I look out over most of you this morning, I would categorize you as young. That category is getting bigger in my mind, but most of you are young. And when you're young, it is so easy to put off until tomorrow what you don't want to do today. Because if you do it today, it may spoil your fun. And besides, you think I've got plenty of time to do that later. Fulfilling the requirements of the Lord, that's for older people. 
people who are a little more settled. Well, let me tell you, as someone who's older, a little, and more settled, it's very easy to put off till tomorrow what you don't want to do today because you're afraid that it might spoil your fun and because you think that you have plenty of time to do it later. Listen, the struggle never changes. It's the same for all of us. But why? Why is it? It isn't as if the unstoppable God hasn't acted on our behalf right now. It isn't as if God is not pouring out His grace on us right now. It isn't as if Jesus has taken a vacation. No, He's at work right now. And what's He doing? Praying. Interceding for you and me. So why should we not respond right now? Moses says, Now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? I believe the reason for our hesitancy, the reason for our willingness to delay in responding to the Lord is because our focus is in the wrong place. You know, if you and I will realign where we're looking and what we're looking at and who we're looking at, I think that even right now, we will be more inclined to do the things that God requires us to do. That's what we see happening here at this time in the life of Moses. Because you see, God required something of him. Look in verse 11. In verse 11, God says, Go, he required of Moses, Go and lead the people on their way so that they may enter and possess the land that I swore to give their fathers. God is requiring Moses to lead these people again. Now, you and I think that we have a hard time doing what God calls us to do, but but think of poor Moses. You know, we don't have time to go over again all the stories we've looked at as we've been in Deuteronomy of how hard it was to deal with these people. They're obstinate, they're stiff-necked, they mumble, they complain against Moses, against God. One time Moses had to run away from them to keep them from stoning him. In fact, he says in Numbers chapter 11, to God, he says, I can't carry these people. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I've found favor in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin. In other words, Moses, God, if you love me, If you really love me, just kill me now. I can't deal with these people anymore. But God says here again to Moses, go lead these people. So if you're Moses, how do you make yourself obey? How do you do it? I know that Charleston County school teachers go back to work tomorrow. Any teachers here? Teachers? Charleston County? Some? When I was teaching school, I hated this time of year making myself go back to the classroom because I knew what was in store for me there. You know, I I love teaching. But in order to teach, there's this tiny little thing that you have to have in place. And they're called students. (laughs) And with students that you have to have come problems. Discipline problems. Big problems. Sometimes scary problems. And you've got to expend all that mental and emotional energy just to stay one step ahead of them to keep your classroom in order. And then there are all those papers that English teachers have to grade, paper after paper after paper. And then there are all the lesson plans that you have to write. And sometimes in the days before school start, I thought, Lord, just take my life now if you love me. I don't want to go back to school. How does Moses keep going? How do you keep going? 
to do the things that God requires of you. You've got to put your focus in the right place. And what's the right focus? Look with me in verse 14. Moses says, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. And now look in verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. So you tell me, where is Moses' focus? It's on the sovereign God. You get the sense here as you read these verses that Moses may be frustrated by the the, the finite and restrictive nature of words. Like words don't exist that he can use to communicate how great God is. You know, whatever your idea of heaven is, well, heaven and even the highest, the heaven of heavens, whatever, they all belong to God. The earth and everything in it, it all belongs to God. He's, he's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. He's the best. He's the greatest. Moses can't be superlative enough in describing how unbelievable and amazing the Lord is. And so Moses can do what God requires him to do because Moses has his eyes fixed on God and his glory. And so the question for us this morning becomes this. What can't you do? What can you not do when you are looking at your great, glorious, gracious, good God? What can you not do when you are looking at, when you are focused on your great, glorious, gracious, good God? Turn with me to Exodus, please. Exodus chapter 33 and 34. Exodus chapter 33 and 34. Because this is the parallel account to what we're reading in Deuteronomy 9 and 10. And God has asked Moses to keep leading his people. But Moses doesn't want to go forward with these people without the presence of God. So look in verse 15 of Exodus 33. Moses says there, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you And I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. Now look in verse 21. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory, my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And now chapter 34, verse 4. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And then the Lord, the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him. And proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, 
maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. And what's Moses' response? He bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Moses may have been crushed beneath the reality of human frailty, of human failure, of human sin. Moses may easily have said, as King Solomon would later say, that all is vanity. Why continue? Why go on? This is pointless. But that thinking changes. That thinking changes. The moment you see the glory of the one and only true and living God, the glory that I think Moses is trying to capture here in verses 14 and 17, it is seeing this fresh vision of God that sustains Moses and makes him, makes him willing to move forward. And what a God he saw. Can you imagine? Standing in the cleft of that rock and seeing the glory of God. So here's the choice before Moses. Focus on the people. Focus on their problems and give up. Or focus on God. Focus on His glory and keep moving forward to do the things that He has called you to do. That's the choice that's before every one of us this morning. We can focus on the problems of life. We can focus on the pain of life. Maybe for many more of us, it's focusing on the pleasures of this life. Or we can focus on the Lord. Lilius Trotter was a brilliant artist, brilliant artist. And her talent opened the doors of wealth and influence to her. This was in the late 1800s. John Ruskin was the leading British art critic of the day. He was also an artist and a social thinker and a philanthropist. And he said to Trotter that if she would devote herself to her art, and this is a quote, you will be the greatest living painter and do things that would be immortal. Can you imagine having the number one art critic say that to you? If you keep at your art, you will be the greatest living painter and your work will be immortal. I don't know about you, but I think I would be tempted to reach out for that goal. Wouldn't you? Be amazing. But Trotter had another passion besides art, and it was missions. And so after struggling for two years in prayer, she came to the conclusion that she had to lay down her love of art in order to fix her eyes solely on Jesus and on his calling her to the mission field. And so she subsequently served for 38 years as a missionary to Muslims in Algeria. And that's where she died. She authored several books and tracts. And this is an excerpt from one of her tracts. It may as well have been written in 2014. She writes, Never has it been so easy to live in a half a dozen harmless worlds at once. Art, music, social science, games, motoring, the following of some profession, and so on. 
And between them, we run the risk of drifting about. The good hiding the best. It's easy to find out whether our lives are focused, and if so, where the focus lies. Where do our thoughts settle when consciousness comes back in the morning? Where do they swing back when the pressure is off during the day? Dare to have it out with God and ask Him to show you whether all or not, ask Him to show you whether or not all is focused on Christ and His glory. Turn your soul's vision to Jesus and look and look at Him and a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from Him. From this tract, Helen Nimmel wrote in 1922 the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. And the light of His glory and His grace. This is how you and I do all the things that God has called us to do. This is how you and I don't balk at or resent or put off till another time responding to the requirements of God because we're not looking at the requirements. We're looking at the God of the requirements, the God who gave them to us. And when you and I are looking and gazing at our unstoppable God, then you and I become unstoppable people. And that's the truth. When we're looking at the Lord and focusing on His nature and His character that caused Him to act so boldly and so lovingly on our behalf, what is it that we would not want to do for him. And when we're looking at the Lord Jesus Christ and our, 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 our gaze, our focus is on him, what can he ask of us that we would ever resent? Why would we put off our response to him till sometime later? Why would you and I not want to do it right now? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you as always for the truth of your word. Lord, it truly is unimaginable to us the experience that Moses had when you taught him to go to the rock, when your glory passed by him, and when he saw you, and when he saw your glory. But Lord, we can imagine because we can see the transformation that made in his life. Moses went from one who was reluctant to lead to one who was eager, Lord, to do the things that you called him to do, to lead your people to the promised land. What a difference it makes, Lord, when we see your glory. And so I pray now that you would cause us to be uh, glory gazers this morning, Lord, that we would keep our eyes focused on you. How do we do that, we ask? We go to your word. Lord, we see your beauty and your glory so clearly revealed from Genesis through Revelation. 
the glory and the beauty and the splendor of your plan. Even the things you require of us, Lord, you tell us over and over they are for our good so that we may live a life that is full and abundant and free in you. So we thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. And so I pray that we would keep our eyes focused on you, that you would be our vision, that you would be first in our sight. And Lord, as we do that, the the challenges of life, uh, they will take their place in the shadows and the dimness because they're overwhelmed by your glory and your grace. And so Lord, help us keep our eyes fixed on you. As Tony prayed this morning, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the glory set before you, you gaze at the glory awaiting you, you endured the cross. So maybe it may be true of us as well, Lord, that as we look at you, you will give us the ability to do all that you call us to do. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.